I want to encourage you to open up your Bible this morning, the Bible you brought with you, Bible that's there in the pew, which if you don't have a Bible is our gift to you, or maybe on your phone you'll open up the Bible app, you'll tap more, the equal sign, then events, and boom, you'll open up right up to our scripture this morning, which is 1 Samuel chapter 16. While you're getting there, poet, warrior, musician, shepherd, king, sinner. Few people can accurately be described using all of these adjectives, but we find one such person in the Old Testament, the man who would be king of Israel, named David. I don't know if you know this, but no human being is mentioned more in the Old Testament than David. Not Moses, not Jacob, not even Abraham. In fact, David's story is the longest and most complete treatment of any one life revealed in the Bible. The next two chapters of the story, and if you're new with us today, we're using this book, this 31-chapter condensed narrative of the Bible story to go through the entirety of the scriptures in a year. The next two chapters, 11 and 12 of the story, are devoted to the life of David. David's story takes up the latter half of 1 Samuel, all of 2 Samuel, and even carries over a bit into 1 Kings. The centrality of David's life in the scriptures cannot be understated. In the history of Israel, prior to Jesus, he is the model king against whom all other kings of the nation are evaluated. And there are three specific, and there are many other things I could share, but three specific highlights of his reign that particularly stand out. David was the king who united the divided tribe, 12 tribes of Israel, and forged them into a nation. It was David who captured Jerusalem and by relocating the Ark of the Covenant there, strategically established that city to this day as the binding political and religious capital of Israel. And thirdly, and perhaps most significant for we who follow Jesus, it was David who received the Lord's promise that one of his descendants would reign forever as king. From David's story, in other words, we glean another piece of God's plan for delivering his people through the wounded victor. That wounded victor mentioned all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Because it's out of this covenant promise to David that the seed of Israel's messianic hope would emerge. And it's for all these reasons that we're going to be spending today and next Sunday, the next two Sundays, reflecting upon David's life. And the question we want to just keep in our minds as we think about David, as we reflect upon his life, is what can we learn from him in our relationship, in our own journey of faith with God? To get there, let me reset the table a little bit. Let's reorient where we are in terms of the story, okay? After more than three centuries of chaos and confusion, much of their own making, Israel has demanded an earthly king to be like the other nations surrounding them. And despite this glaring snub of the consistent presence, provision, and deliverance of the Lord, God still directs Samuel, Samuel who is the last of Israel's judges and the first of her prophets, the Lord directs Samuel to anoint the tall and good-looking Saul, to be the first earthly king of Israel. 
And as we talked about last week, Saul's promising start as a monarch fades under the shadow of his repeated disobedience of God's clear instructions. His impatience, his foolishness, and most of all, his pride result in his forfeiture of the kingship of Israel. God withdraws his spirit from Saul. And getting us to where we begin today, God then leads Samuel to a quiet, unassuming place in the land of Judah, a location where the story has taken us before, that little town of Bethlehem. As Samuel draws near the town, the Lord directs him to the house of Jesse. And when we read in a moment, when you hear the house of Jesse, I hope your mind goes back not too far to when Lee was preaching and remember that Jesse was the grandson of Ruth. Samuel is directed to the house of Jesse and his family of eight sons. And God makes it clear as Samuel gets closer that one of these young men will be the next king of Israel. Let's read about that in 1 Samuel chapter 16, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king of Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Elab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and then had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Well, there is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And Samuel then went on to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Last week, I, as we looked at the Israel's story through the reign of Saul, I made an important distinction about a distinction between how Saul and the people wanted to look versus how they were actually living. And I made this point that when it comes to our relationship with God, it's not how we look, it's how we live. And I bring this up because this theme is echoed right away in God's choosing of David to be the next king of Israel. 
As the Lord, you heard this, as the Lord sends Samuel to anoint the new king, Samuel tries to guess who God's chosen is going to be. I love this. This is awesome, right? I mean, Samuel's like, oh, I, I'm going to figure this out. And what's interesting is Samuel's criteria is like everybody else's, like you and me, based on the most obvious qualities. Okay, who's the oldest? Who's the strongest? Who's the most handsome? And Samuel puts his eyes, as you heard, on the first son of Jesse, and he thinks, my job's done. We're done here. This guy's resume is impeccable. Plus, he looks like a natural leader. Surely, this has to be the guy the Lord's anointed. And if this isn't it, then please tell me who is, because this guy is impressive. Thanks for coming in, gentlemen, but you can all go back to the field. We're done here. Samuel's ready to go forward. You heard that, but the Lord says no. And then the same thing happens for each of the other six brothers. Samuel would say, well, this one looks like he fits the bill. This has got to be the guy. And every time God would say, nope, not him. Samuel's criteria for leadership was obvious to everybody except God. And it's, it's the, I don't know if you caught it, and I, mean, I tried to read it well, but as, after Samuel believes he's seen the last of Jesse's sons, did you pick up on how things get awkward? It's like, uh, I know this is the place the Lord sent me to. This is the right house. So Samuel kind of asks, uh, is there somebody I haven't seen? And I don't know if you caught this, but there is one more son, but he's the youngest, and apparently he's of such little account, right, that when, when Samuel sends word and says, bring all your sons in, he's of such little account, Jesse has him out in the field tending the sheep. Now, now this is like the Bible's version of the Cinderella story. Now, the slipper's not going to fit on you. You just, you just stay back there. And, and No, seriously, the Hebrew word that's used here for youngest, in English it just doesn't do it justice, but when his father answered, when Jesse answers, well, the youngest is out tending the sheep, the Hebrew word actually means runt. I got to runt, he's out tending the sheep, but that's not who you're looking for, right? I got one more boy, but he's the runt of the litter. He couldn't be the next king. Even Jesse couldn't see what was coming. As his teenage son shows up, and you could probably picture this, right? I mean, if, if the judge comes to town, Samuel, and says, hey, assemble your sons, I'm on the Lord's business, you can imagine the other seven got themselves together, right? Like, to look, you know, prepared. You know, you go on a job interview, you don't just walk in in your, you know, surfer shorts and your t-shirt. If you do, you're not getting a job, right? I mean, but David's been out in the field, and so Jesse can't even see what's coming as his teenage son. I want you to picture this. This teenage boy shows up not looking presentable, but arriving sweaty and smelling like sheep. And the Lord declares to Samuel, that's him. He's the one. To everyone's surprise, the eighth, the eighth of eight sons, the runt of the litter, a kid no older than a freshman in high school, is anointed the next king of Israel. And right from the start, David's selection proves something we'll see time and time again in the story. Is God's vision is deeper, better than ours. The Lord, in fact, tells Samuel this is so when he declares, the Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 
And this is true. I mean, this is timeless, isn't it? I mean, in the world, and I just said, if you're dressed up in those, you know, Bermuda shorts and your tank top, you're not going to get the job. The world perceives value in terms of the outward appearance. We look at power. We look at productivity. But God does not look where everyone else does. God looks within. God looks at something else, at the heart. Twice in the Bible, in fact, twice in the Bible, David is called a man after God's own heart. It's sort of David's calling card, if you will. It's this one-line summation or descriptor of who he was. David, a man after God's own heart. Imagine that business card, right? And in Hebrew, I should clarify this, the heart is what we would call the mind. It's the seat of one's thought, one's, in, one's intelligence, and one's will. But it's, all, it's not divided the way we divide the mind and the heart. That's the center, but it encompasses desire and emotion. David was a man after God's own thought, intelligence, desires, and will. And that's all I want to focus on this morning. That's all I want to focus on. I don't have three points. I simply have one. I want to focus and I want to unpack what does it mean to understand, to perceive David as a man after God's own heart. I remember, I remember I was very young, the first time I heard that description of David in the, in the telling of his story. David, a man after God's own heart. I don't know about you when the first time you heard it, but the first time I heard it, I wanted that to be my defining quality too. I mean, who wouldn't, right? Who does not want that? The question is, how do we understand this affirmation of David? What are the defining characteristics of being a person after God's own heart? I said to you, I wanted that to be my defining quality. But, and again, I don't know if you can relate to this, as I got older and as I wrestled with my own faults, my own blind spots, my own foolish tendencies, I began to wonder if it was even possible to be like David. If it was even possible to be a person after God's own heart. And that's what I mean. I, I, we got to wrestle with this. What are the defining characteristics of being a person after God's own heart? Is this a character trait unique to David is what I'm asking you? Is this something unique to David? Or is it something else? You know, as I wrestled with this in my own faith journey, it occurred to me which to ask which meaning of the word after is intended in this statement about David. I'm really kind of slowing down. I want you to be track with me. Which meaning of after is in this statement, David, a man after God's own heart? Which meaning of after? Is David, in other words, a person after God's own heart in the sense he possesses a heart like God's? Meaning David's thoughts and desires are in accordance with God's own? Or does being after God's own heart mean that David is one who is literally after, pursuing God's own heart? Meaning David seeks to follow. David seeks to be in conformity, to be in agreement, to be in unison, to imitate God's own intent, desire, and will. So to, to just break this down, is being a person after God's own heart a matter of possession or a matter of pursuit? Because you see, the thing is, I used to think it was the first answer, possession, and it haunted me. It haunted me. David had it, you know? David had it. He had it. He possessed it. He had a heart like God's, and I just don't. David had this uncanny ability to read God's mind, to share his desires, to be in accordance with his will. He was born with it, and I clearly wasn't. 
because I can't read God's mind because, man, my desires are often not in line with God's. And am I acting in accordance with his will? Not so much. So I thought, well, David was just born that way. Some people have it and some people don't. And I guess I don't. But then I read the text again. By the way, always a good idea. Read it again. And I read it again, and as I read it again and again, I thought about it. I didn't just read it, I thought about it. It got inside me, and that's what God's word wants to do. It wants to get inside you. God wants to speak to you through his words. That's what we mean. He wants to interact with your thoughts. And in that reading it again and thinking about it, God revealed something to me. I noticed something that I just glossed over, and here it is. It's right in what we just read. So if you have your Bible still open, you can see it. If not, you can go back and look at it. In our introduction to David, the first time we come across David, if we look carefully, we see this. It's not about something David already has. It's about something David is given. Notice, in this encounter, David doesn't do anything or demonstrate anything. David does not speak. He doesn't act. He doesn't even answer any questions. We're simply told, and it's this simple, and it's significant. We're simply told, God chose David. God told Samuel to anoint David, and the Lord's Spirit came upon David. See where I'm going with this? David is given the authority of the crown. David is given the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not about what David has beforehand. It's about what God gives to David. So, in other words, being a man after God's own heart wasn't something unique to David. It's the essence of what the Lord seeks to cultivate and bring to blossom in our relationship with him. Being a person after God's own heart, in other words, is both a pursuit and a possession. A pursuit and a possession. Track with me here. Out of God's initiative toward him, David pursued the heart of God. He sought after the Lord's thoughts, desires, and will in order to more fully possess the heart of God. The character of God born out of his thoughts, desires, and will. David pursued in order to possess. By way of analogy, I don't know how it was in your situation if you're married, but my wife gave me her hand in marriage. I didn't take it. I didn't show up and say, hey, guess what? We're getting hitched. Come on. <laughs> if you know my wife, that would not have been a good idea. I got down on my knee and I asked, and my wife gave me her hand in marriage. And when I received her hand in marriage, let's keep going with this, I didn't then possess her. I put a ring on it, babe, you're mine now. Again, if you know my wife, that would not be a good idea. <laughs> when she gave me her hand in marriage, I didn't possess her. The secret, I would argue, to marriage as God intended is to continue to pursue even though my wife gave me her hand, I didn't think that I possessed her. I continued to pursue her, to know her, to love her, in order to more fully possess, to embrace and experience who she is. Our relationship with God is no different. God gives us his hand. God takes the initiative. And in taking God's hand, we pursue this God. We pursue knowing him, loving him, 
serving him in order to more fully possess, to embrace and experience who he is. To put this another way, being a person after God's own heart, and this is our, again, our single focus this morning, being a person after God's own heart is being in pursuit of God's heart in order to possess the fullness of the character of God. To make it real short and sweet for you, being a person after God's heart is being all in for the Lord. Being all in for the Lord. I don't know if you've ever played poker or watched someone else play the game. I all of a sudden realized, should I be talking about this in church? But I'm doing it anyway. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever played poker or watched someone else play the game. But when a player has full confidence in what they're holding in their hand, they push all their chips, everything they have, into the middle of the table and they state, I'm all in. I'm all in. This action, this statement indicates this person is putting it all on the line. They're not holding anything back. They're not hedging their bets in any way. To perceive David as a man after God's own heart is to see David was all in for God. In his pursuit of the Lord, David held nothing back. He placed everything of himself all that he had in the center of whatever the Lord called him to do. In his desire to take hold of his relationship with God, David didn't hedge his bets. He went full out. David was committed to following wherever the Lord led him. And there are so many examples from David's life I could point to in order to see this. But perhaps the best illustration of David being all in for God is certainly the most well-known of all of the stories about David his showdown with the giant known as Goliath. We've all heard this story. It, it happens when David is still in puberty. He's still a teenager. The continued rival of Israel, the Philistines, are once again assembled for war. The battle lines are drawn. Both armies are ready to fight. But the Philistines take a different tactic this time. They send out just one warrior, a huge giant named Goliath. Towering over all the Israelites, he offers to reduce their conflict to a one-on-one -on -one battle. Israel's best fighter against him. Whoever wins serves the other. No one in Israel's army is willing to take this offer. They are all, from King Saul all the way to the last soldier, too intimidated, too terrified to move. So no one does. It's a standstill. Nothing is happening except for Goliath continuing to loudly mock and taunt Israel. Now, I've given you the setup for this story, and I want to just pause for a second because I really need you to, th to, to go with me here because too often we have heard this very important story in David's life. We've heard it so much. We've domesticated this story into nothing more than a morality tale. We've taken the story of David and Goliath and made it our quintessential story of the little guy overcoming the big guy. We appeal to David's victory over Goliath whenever there's a mighty upset in athletics or some other life event. But my friends, this story is about so much more than the rugged, lone individual defying the odds by conquer conquering some giant obstacle. Honestly, if this is all you get out of this story, you're missing the point. 
God, Goliath in this moment is defying the God of Israel. He's not defying Israel. He's defying the God of Israel. And he's not just defying. Go back and read what Goliath says. He's not just defying this God's power to save his people. Goliath is defying the Lord's actual presence among his people. Hear this. Goliath is calling out Yahweh, Israel's God as a false God, a non-existent deity, a make-believe crutch upon which this emerging nation is leaning her hopes. It's David in this story, and seemingly David alone, who gets what's at stake here. He says it when he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy? Listen, he should defy the armies of the living God. Uncircumcised Philistines defy armies of the living God. David understands Goliath's challenge in covenantal terms. Not doubting or denying the mere flesh and blood armies of Israel. That's not what's happening here. David gets this. David understands Goliath's challenge is denying the promise and power of the forces of God to forge the descendants of Abraham into a nation. A nation from whom all other nations will be blessed. David gets what's at stake here. Saul, David's brothers, and the rest of the Israelites are hedging their bets here, right? There's a line they're not willing to cross, literally. There's a line they're not willing to cross in their relationship with God. Their confidence in God's presence and power only goes so far, and it doesn't go as far as that guy. David, in contrast, is all in. He does not hesitate. You read this story, he does not hesitate. He holds nothing back. Even though people continue to make him count the cost, and count the cost he does, he pushes all his chips in anyway. He puts his life in God's hand, doesn't wear armor, doesn't take a sword. He trusts the Lord will give him the victory. David's radical confidence in God's ability not only to save Israel, but also to raise up Israel as promised is evidenced in this story when David makes two amazing declarations to Goliath. And we get so caught up in the story, we miss this. First, David clarifies, as he faces Goliath, David clarifies the real weapon he brings into battle against this giant is not a sword, it's not a spear, it's not a javelin, it's not even the sling or the stones he's carrying. David clarifies the real weapon he brings into battle is the ironclad power of the name of God. And second, In this moment, you can picture it, right? David is so fixated on pursuing God's heart, all in, right? He's so fixated on pursuing God's heart, even though he faces a giant who by all appearances, right, looks able to squash him like a bug. David trusts that the battle belongs to the Lord and openly, publicly announces to Goliath, you will be delivered into my hands before the conflict even begins. He says it before it even starts. You will be in our hands. And before you can say off with his head, Goliath is dead. Israel is victorious. The Philistines turn and run to fight another day. David becomes famous, but most of all, God yet again proves himself faithful and trustworthy. God proves himself yet again worthy of betting your life on. 
What does it mean to be a person after God's own heart? From the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, all the way to the great commandment, the greatest commandment. To be a person after God's own heart is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus said. And this is important, that second part that Jesus adds, because long before Jesus adds it, loving God with everything you have, and then Jesus adds loving your neighbor as yourself, long before Jesus adds it, David shows us what it means to be all in. Because you see, David being all in for God is not limited to his facing of this giant. His pursuit of God's heart in order to possess God's character is also seen, I think even more powerfully, in the, the neighbor, even the enemy he loved. What do I mean by that? Well, if you're familiar with the story, if you read this chapter in the story, or if you've read this in the Bible before, David has to keep betting his life on the Lord. Because his ascendancy to the throne of Israel is not immediate or easy. The word has gotten out that Saul has been disqualified for the monarchy. You see, the word has gotten out to everyone except Saul. Because Saul refuses to abdicate his throne. And this is interesting, because this is what I want you to see, how much David was all in. Humbly trusting in God's plan and timing. David, humbly trusting in God's plan and timing, even though the crown is his. It's his. He's been anointed. David doesn't try to leverage his growing popularity. And after he slays Goliath and then has some more victories, the people are chanting David's name. Even though the crown is his, David doesn't try to leverage his growing popularity in order to take what rightfully belongs to him. No, he's all in, humbly trusting in God's plan and timing. He goes all in by first trying to serve Saul serve Saul in his palace. He serves Saul in this palace that if you read this story is often volatile and dangerous for him. He tries to serve Saul. But if you know this story, eventually Saul's jealousy gets the better of him and he just finally puts a price on David's head. David is forced to run and hide in caves. He's even forced to run and hide among the Philistines. And even though, still, as we progress, even though everyone is suddenly all out to get him, David still remains all in with the Lord. Despite becoming an exile to his own country, David never betrays his people to the Philistines. Multiple opportunities come up for David on the field of battle. They present themselves for David to take Saul's life and finally come home and take the throne. But David again and again refuses to lift a hand against the Lord's anointed. What I'm trying to show you in the quickest of ways is David being all in for God isn't just loving God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength, but David, just as Jesus will talk about many, many centuries later, David loves and honors his neighbor, even his enemy, as himself. David's life is, is incredible. Time and time again, David shows himself to be a man after God's own heart. In his relentless pursuit of God's heart, David seeks to conform his life to God's life, to possess his character, his holiness, his goodness, everything that is God. And that leaves for us this morning this question. Is all in the defining characteristic of your relationship with this God? Is all in the defining characteristic of your relationship with this God. In the day-to-day, moment-by-moment experiences of your life, are you leaning on the Lord, putting your life in his hands and holding nothing back as you engage what he puts before you? 
Is the Lord your ultimate pursuit in this life? Is your ultimate pursuit in this life his heart, his mind, his will for your life? You know, I use the analogy of of, uh, getting married to my wife, but think about being in love. Think about romance, right? When you're in love, when the romance starts, no one has to tell you to pursue the person that you love, right? You just do it. Isn't it interesting? When you're in love with someone, that person, you know, no one has to say, hey, remember to think about so-and-so. When you're in love with someone, they are your first and last thought. When you're in love with someone, no one has to say, hey, let's get our, out our calendars and see when we can get a date going on this, right? When you're in love with someone, isn't it amazing? Your busy life, suddenly you plan your work and life around them because you want to be with them. There's a reason why the scriptures continue to use this analogy of love in our relationship with God. Do you, are you in love with the Lord? Are you all in? Do you actively seek to know and understand his thoughts, his desires, his purposes for you? Your life is busy, but if you know how much God loves you and if that love for you is burning inside, suddenly, just like with any other lover, you will move things around. You will make time because there's no one else with whom you want to be. My friends, God wants our all. Are we passionate about possessing the character of our creator, of taking hold of this God who has taken hold of us? God wants our all. He wants nothing more and he wants nothing less. Our father aims for our focus to be his focus, for our priorities to be his priorities, for our goals to be his goals, for our lives and for this world. And here's the thing, we can never possess the heart of God. We can never possess the heart of God if being with God, listening, looking, following God is not our number one pursuit. We can never possess the heart of God if being in relationship with God is not our number one pursuit because other pursuits before the Lord will always get in the way. And I didn't say that other pursuits were wrong. I said other pursuits before the Lord will always get in the way. And other pursuits before the Lord will ultimately lead us away from God. Remember Saul. In contrast to David, and really you could line up Saul and David as contrasts of each other. Remember, in contrast to David, Saul was sort of in. Not all in, sort of in. David was was all in, Saul was sort of in. Saul almost did what the Lord told him, right? He failed to listen. He was almost obedient, and he failed to see that partial obedience is disobedience. His limited attention to God, Saul's limited attention to God and holding back a little bit in reserve, remember holding back a little bit from God, it eventually distanced him from God. It didn't distance God from him, he distanced himself from God. And if you know Saul's story, and it's not, it's not fun, a little disobedience in Saul's life quickly grew into a lot of unrepentant pride which spiraled into mad, vengeful jealousy and ultimately results in Saul meeting a lonely and grisly death. Beloved, offering God a piece of our heart is still living with a divided heart. Almost is never enough when it comes to our relationship with our Father. Almost is never enough when it comes to our relationship with our Father. He wants all of us Not understanding this was Saul's problem. Don't let it be ours. It takes focus to keep our eyes, let alone our hearts and minds, on the Lord. We need strength in order to believe what we often sometimes can't see. 
that God is with us, that God is working in and through, maybe even despite the challenges, the obstacles, and the pain we're facing. And sometimes we can convince ourselves like I once did, as I shared with you earlier. Sometimes we can convince ourselves we can't have a heart for God like David. That we haven't got what it takes for God like David. Beloved, this is a lie. It is a debilitating lie. And I want you, as I'm pushing you this morning, don't hear this rally cry that I'm giving you as a cry of condemnation against you or me. This is not to elicit more guilt and shame. Man, I am just worthless. No, what I am saying to you, hear this word of God as a glorious invitation to receive and enter into our Father's heart. If you're sitting here piling on the guilt and shame and saying, I don't have what it takes like David did, remember, remember, David didn't have anything other than what God gave him. It was the Lord who initiated, the Lord who called David, the Lord authorized David, gave him authority. It was the Lord who gave him the power of the Holy Spirit. David wasn't perfect. If you have any doubts about that, join us next week. We'll see that soon enough. David wasn't perfect. David just had God-given potential, the potential of the authority and power God gave him. The potential was there. David just had to follow it. Out of such authority and power to pursue the heart of God in order to possess the character of God's heart. Beloved, do you understand this? Do you believe this? Do you know this? This same authority and power, this same potential is ours. We don't have to be perfect to be all in for God. And honestly, we're not going to be perfect when we're all in for God because the path from sinner to saint is not a short and straight line. The path from sinner to saint is filled with a lot of dirt, a lot of dust, a lot of blood, a lot of sweat, and yes, a lot of tears. There's a lot of dirt, dust, blood, sweat, and tears getting from where God finds us to where God wants to take us. Just ask David. Facing Goliath, as much as we lift up that story, think about this. Facing Goliath proved to be far easier and a much more immediate victory than dealing with the real giant that David had before him. And that was getting in the way of where the Lord was leading him. And that real giant was Saul's ego and his refusal to surrender the throne. Think about this. David waited 14 years, 14 years to get where the Lord was taking him. Sometimes in our pursuit of God, it can be agonizingly long with many twists and turns. And those twists and turns can be where we have no idea where we are going in this journey. But when you're all in for God, what you understand is that it is the journey that God, it's through the journey that God grows us into the people we need to be in order to finish well the course the Lord has set out for us. When you're all in for God, you believe and you trust that it's the journey the Lord takes us on to grow us into the people we need to be in order to finish well the course that he has set out for us. And we see this in David's life. During David's years of exile, as he hid in caves and the like, he was constantly singing of the greatness of God. He was constantly declaring he was all in. How do I know this? Sometime later today, turn to the book of Psalms. Most of those songs are written by David, declaring over and over, even in his lowest moments, he will get there. I'm all in because I know God is good. God is great. 
David is all in. Are we? Are you? Becoming a person after God's own heart through our pursuit of the Lord and possession of his character is the kind of commitment that's needed if we seek to live into the fullness of who we were created to be, the life for which we were created. If you're in this relationship with God and yet you still are struggling with your identity, if you're still struggling to understand what's it all about, why am I here, may I humbly suggest that it's not a question of God holding back from you, it's a question of you holding back from him. You gotta be all in. Because if we're not all in with the Lord, if we're not all in when the darkness falls or the giants stand before us, we're tempted to take the chips we have remaining and go play some other game in life. My friends, what game are you playing today? Where are you putting your chips? You gotta be all in. We don't have to be perfect for God, but we do have to be all in with God. And the good news is we can be all in for God because God is all in for us. Hear that. We can be all in for God because God is all in for us. We know this because out of David's line, one day another shepherd will come, a good shepherd who will become the greatest king of all. He too will bring unity, but not among a tribe of people, but within the divided heart of every person. He will bring unity out of the fragments of this broken world, he too will establish a kingdom, but not a kingdom of one nation over all, but of all nations coming together in peace through him. His conquest will not come with a sword, but through a cross. His ascension will not be first to a throne, but from the grave. The son of David, the one called Jesus, will go all in for us. Jesus will be more than a man after God's own heart. Jesus is the one who comes to give us God's heart. The gifts of the cross, the resurrection and Pentecost, through the gifts of the cross, the resurrection and Pentecost, beloved, hear it. We have been given authority and power just like David. We have been given all the authority and power we need to keep our focus in the face of every new challenge, every new battle, before the giants before us, we have been given the power and authority to maintain our pursuit of the Lord. The strength we lack, and we all feel it, we all feel our weakness on this journey of faith. That strength we lack before that scary diagnosis or prognosis. That strength we lack when we are laid off from our job. That strength we lack when divorce seems on the horizon or some other family difficulty or relational heartbreak. That strength we lack has been given to us by the Spirit of God at work within us. In your weakness, if you are all in, God will reveal his strength. If we yield to that spirit, to that authority and power at work within us, if we rely upon him as our comforter and our counselor, we will possess, we will mature into God's character. It isn't a question of if we will, it's simply a matter of when. Because like David and Goliath, the victory will be ours because the battle belongs to the Lord. And the Lord is always faithful in keeping his promises. Amen.